Welcome to Medical Minefield, the podcast where we talk about the ethical dilemmas at the heart of the health stories that matter the most. I'm Barney Kalman. And I'm Pat Hagen, filling in for Eve Simmons. And we are health journalists, which means we spend our lives asking tough questions to top experts so you don't have to. This week, we're talking about how thousands of vulnerable patients are being forced to pay for vital NHS care the NHS should be funding. As always, we'd like to know what you think. If you've got a question or have something to say, you can do so on Twitter using the hashtag MedicalMinefield. Pat, thanks very much for uh, filling in for Eve. Uh, I'm sure no one will notice the difference. A seamless transition. You've been looking into this this week. It's an interesting phenomenon. i give a bit of background. I'd never heard of this problem, but we were told of a case that someone had been approached by a private law firm, basically, offering to um, help them secure funding for something called NHS Continuing Healthcare. Now, I, I had heard of NHS Continuing Healthcare, this is money that's ring-fenced, supposedly, for people that otherwise would need to be in hospital because they have such great healthcare needs. But in fact, it's it was basically designed to get them out of hospital and looked after in a in a care home or in their own homes and, and provide the same level of care they would get in hospital to stop them from getting very, very ill. So it's quite a specific a bit of funding. And I was aware that it was very difficult to get hold of as well. I'd reported on a case of a, a severely disabled boy that was being denied continuing healthcare funding, despite the fact that he needed 24 hour a day supervision. His condition was so complicated, he could choke very, very easily, basically, without being too graphic. And his local NHS trust was trying to take away his continuing healthcare funding, and uh, his his mum went to the papers, and and we uh, we highlighted the case, and and they did actually end up continuing to give the care until the boy unfortunately died of natural causes. But it was a new one on me that there were it was such a problem getting hold of it that you know law firms have popped up when you you know you do a Google for a certain search term and it's a bit like doing a Google for health insurance or whatever and these these firms they pop up and they say they're going to be able to fight your case for you and uh, but in this case you have to pay a huge fee don't you you pay four grand or something like that up front. Yeah, so it seems that these firms, and there are about half a dozen or so that have sprung up over the last seven or eight years, and most of them are run by solicitors who run it as a, as a sideline because they've been approached by people asking for help. And the way it seems to work is that usually with kind of medical negligence type cases, there's a no win, no fee option. These are slightly different in that the solicitor will take an initial call and then they'll carry out an assessment of the case based on what information the uh, relative of the person in question is able to supply. That will be their medical records, their care records, their medical needs. And then based on that, they make a, a judgment on whether there's a realistic chance of securing CHC funding for that family. Mm. So the ones that I spoke to claimed that they reject, at that initial screening process, they reject around 70 to 80% 
of cases. Because obviously the, the first thing that pops into my mind when I hear this whole scenario is that these firms are going to be ripping people off. If you charge an upfront fee and you're not going to pay someone back if you don't win the case, there'll be this huge multi-thousand pound incentive to take on as many cases as you can. One startling fact that you told me that it's only one in five in the you know general population, one in five claims for continuing healthcare make it. Yeah, so and that, that's a vast failure rate. That's official data. So, and that's without getting these these firms involved. That's without. So at the moment, the, the number of cases, the number of CHC applications that go all the way through to funding being granted, I think it's actually about 18%. Wow. Now, that's not to say that the rest of that percentage are justified cases that are being declined. A lot of those won't necessarily qualify. They won't necessarily meet the criteria for CHC funding. But it's still a very low level. And um, there was a report by the um, parliamentary ombudsman in 2020, I think, which highlighted the fact that really sort of disappointingly low numbers Mm. of people were meeting the criteria. And as it said, that the NHS was failing to fund and care for the most vulnerable in society. And I mean, we're talking astronomical sums. Uh, One of the the stories that you heard, someone was paying around £10,000 a month. And I know that there's around 25,000 families waiting to hear about cases or be assessed for continuing health care, all of them shelling out these vast sums. I mean, you're hemorrhaging money. And of course, how does it get paid for? If you have any assets, it all everything you, you've worked your whole life for gets sold for a start. Yeah, that's it. So this is, um, if you say, for example, there are thousands of families up and down the country paying care home fees for elderly relatives. And that's just standard care home costs. Add into that the additional medical costs. Let's say you have an elderly relative in a care home and they have dementia, but they have dementia where it triggers aggression, abusive behaviour, behavioural issues. That means they need close one-on-one round-the-clock attention. That has to be paid for. So the bills go up and up and up. Now, technically, in those kind of cases under the NHS CHE funding, it's very likely that a lot of those people would qualify for funding from that pot of money. And it doesn't just mean that they pay the medical costs, but the CHC pot should then cover all care costs, Mm. therefore taking that huge financial burden and stress and pressure off not just the person in question, but their families. I'm still slightly sceptical, of course. I mean, having had experience of of lawyers and all sorts who are are all, you know, if any lawyers are listening to this wonderful job everyone's doing, but it's not a philanthropic exercise, really, is it? And these firms, they seem to advertise aggressively, I'd say, on Google. You type in continuing healthcare and what pops up is not the NHS explainer, of how you could be eligible for that, but these firms advertising to you. And they look like, well, I mean, you're going to click on them first, aren't they? So uh, forgive me for being slightly suspicious of them. I think that's legitimate. And, and, and the families I've spoken to share that concern. Their big concern is they are plucking these people out of the ether. They're approaching them and then they're getting an assessment. But the next step is that they are asked to part with usually in excess of £4,000. And that's just the start of it, isn't that's it? That's the start. Mm. Then if there is a, a hearing that they want representation at, it can cost 1500 to £2,700 a day. If there's a subsequent appeal, it could be thousands more. Mm. You could end up spending £10,000 
and not get the funding in the end. But if you're, you know, if you know that you need additional one-on-one support for your, say, elderly relative who's violent with dementia and can't be left alone, is a danger to themselves, etc. I mean, you you bloody well are uh, eligible for this kind of care, and, and so many people do seem to get turned down. You're stuck between rock and a hard place, really. Yeah. So the families I've spoken to, they know this is a gamble, and it's a on paper, it's quite a big financial gamble. But if they succeed, for a lot of them, it's fifty, sixty thousand pounds a year mm. funding that they are currently having to find. And if they get it backdated, which in some cases has happened because they were wrongly declined or turned down by the NHS, mm. then they can recoup the costs that they've already paid out and they secure the funding going forward. But there's an issue. And the issue is that winning the funding is just the first step. These decisions are usually subject to three monthly or six monthly reviews. Yeah, that's what I saw with the case of Katie Jackson that I wrote about. She was having threats that it would be taken away every every three months or so, and they, they kept coming back for her. Here's the irony with this funding. You can't just have a condition. You have to be very ill to get it. This isn't a pot of money for anyone who's old or ill. It's very specific funding for very specific needs. The problem that a lot of people have is that it's a minefield working way through it's a bureaucratic minefield to work out what the criteria are and whether your relative qualifies and that's why so many people are turning to these companies that are charging thousands of pounds yeah well on the line now we have got karen chapman who's fighting currently to get nhs continuing healthcare funding for her veteran father andrew Karen, thanks very much for finding time to talk to us. We're discussing NHS continuing healthcare and, and you have a, a, some experience of, of trying to get that for your dad, Andrew. Is is that right? Yes, that's correct, yes. So before we start, could you tell us a bit about the background to your father's health? What kind of needs does he have? When when did he first start getting ill or, or to the extent that you knew you would need extra help? Yeah, he's had dementia for uh, 11 years. He lived at home with my mum who is 92 and disabled and the last five years he's deteriorated a bit more rapidly. We've had carers look after him sort of on the morning with myself and my mum to care for him because he's, he's just gradually lost all his ability to practically do anything for himself together with um, incontinence, the inability to walk other than just a shuffle and he's had quite a series of falls of late as well which um, have added to the problems. And with the dementia has come other other things. I mean, people tend to think dementia is just a memory thing, but it completely alters the behaviour of the person. He's had quite a lot of agitation. He's done peculiar things that, I mean, my dad was always such a gentleman, like spitting on the floor, on the carpet and things like that, which just bizarre things, totally out of character. And... I believe that he was a, a war hero, that he fought in World War Two, and he was with Bomber Command, is that right? Yes, correct, yes. He served with 12 Squadron Bomber Command during the war as a wireless operator flying in Lancaster bombers hmm. and served his time during the war. And then following the war, he joined GCHQ and he was in government communications for the rest of his career. Really? So real life of duty then? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, he served overseas and in this country. Mm. But uh, unfortunately now his only memories are that of the war. <laughs> right, right. Because uh, his, his recent memory's just gone completely. Yeah, yeah. 
And so with the NHS continuing healthcare, when did you first become aware of that or that there was this pot of money? Yeah, well, I've sort of been aware of it for some time. I've had various friends who've been through similar stages, getting their parents into care and things. Mm. And everybody that you speak to says you never get the NHS funding. You know, you've got to be practically dead before the NHS will consider it. So it wasn't a path I was particularly going down, but then I was I was scrolling the internet and there was a an advert popped up that said, you could be entitled to it, you see. Fill in this assessment. So I thought, oh, well, I'll fill the assessment in. And then the company that I'm currently with phoned me and asked me a series of questions and recommended that I got a good case and that they had a, a 70% success rate of, getting NHS funding for their clients. So I thought we would give it a go because they had the expertise and the knowledge to take it forward. But they've charged you for this? Unfortunately, it's quite a high charge, yes. But um, it's a bit of a gamble, of course, and I don't think we should have to do this, but I weighed it up against the fact that it would cost us the equivalent of what we're paying now for a month's care home fees. So, you know, if we were successful, then, you know, it it would be beneficial if you don't mind, could I ask how much you are paying? Yeah, we pay uh, £950 a week. Gosh. Mm. And where's that money coming from? From my dad's savings. Yeah. Yes. But I guess he's going to, I mean, you, you go through that quite quickly. Um, you know, if you're paying a grand a week. Absolutely. I mean, it's, yeah, it's 50 grand a year, you know, you soon get yeah. through it. And and do they own their own home? Is, is that sort of, is, does it look like they're going to have to sell that? Well, whilst my mum's still living in it, I don't think you have to sell it. But then as soon as anything happens to my mum, yes, we will have to sell the home. Mm. Yeah. Mm. And so what what have you paid this company, if, if you don't mind me asking as well? Sure. I've paid them 4200 And is that refundable at all if they don't win? It isn't. No, that's not refundable. Wow. That's the first fee. They then push it through to the NHS. If the NHS refuse, they will then take it through to appeal, which again is another 4,200 plus, I think it was something like 1,500 for their representative to attend any hearings. Yikes. Mm. It must feel, given how much your dad's given this country, beyond having paid his taxes to, to pay for NHS care. It is. It's galling. He's never claimed anything before in his life, you know, and now when he needs it, it's not there. Somehow they don't seem to recognise dementia as a medical illness. Mm. Even when someone needs so much extra care as your as your dad does, a complicated case. Yes, absolutely. Before we go, can I ask, uh, you know, what is the timescale for all of this? Did they tell you how long you'd have to wait? How long have you been waiting to, to, to get an answer? Right, well, it, we're fairly new with it. I only sort of took it up about two or three weeks ago. So... I've paid the money up front. They then write to various establishments, GPs, care homes, hospital, and get reports on my father, which they then submit to the NHS. So once they've got those reports back and it's submitted to the NHS, I understand they have to respond within 28 days. But then after that, if it is turned down, appeals can take years to go through. Very often the person can have passed away before anything comes forth. Well, look, thanks so much for taking the time to explain things for us, and I really do wish you the best of luck. Thank you.
So, Pat, you've spoken to other people who are in the same boat as Karen. And, and in fact, you spoke to someone who did win their payout, didn't you? Yes. One of the families that I spoke to had put in a claim for their elderly parent. And uh, the claim was turned down by their local clinical commissioning group. Now, they are the local NHS bodies that decide how money is spent. And they turned it down, I think, in 2019. And so the family continued to bear the mounting costs of care and medical needs. Then they approached a specialist law firm dealing in this area and asked them to look into it. And they put together a case and managed to overturn it. And so they won backdated payments for, I think, more than a year, totaling, I think, in the region of £50,000, £60,000. And, of course, uh, ongoing funding for the future, providing they continue to meet the criteria. So that was a gamble that they paid out for, and it paid off handsomely. But there are probably many other families. First of all, they may not even know that CHC funding even exists. Yeah, I mean, there's, it's hard to, uh, you know, it's it's not it doesn't roll off the tongue, does it? It's it doesn't roll off the tongue. Everyone knows of. You won't see it advertised at a bus stop. And uh, really interesting is that there's a, a bit of a theory going around that care homes who are meant to play a part in constantly assessing their residents in terms of what funding they do and don't qualify for. That's where really where the assessments are kind of meant to take place. There's a bit of an incentive for them to not actually highlight CHC funding because when the NHS secures beds at care homes, they negotiate a hefty discount. I don't know what the discount is, but I believe it's fairly sizable. So there's a perverse incentive for care homes to not secure NHS funding on the part of their residents because... They'll get more money otherwise. They'll get more money otherwise. They'll get more money out of families paying privately. I also spoke to the, the sisters you interviewed briefly. One thing that they mentioned was that during this whole process, their dad had had to sell the family home and move into a residential care himself or supported living himself. And this is a you know home he'd had with his wife their whole life. And they'd gone through that money at a rate of knots while fighting the case. And although it was backdated, it couldn't buy the home back. And in fact, dad just gave up and, you know, passed away, sadly, in the middle of all this stress and hair pulling. I'm sure some people seeing this issue will think, well, hang on a minute, they're just money-grabbing families trying to squeeze funds out of the NHS so they don't have to pay for their parents' care. But this is money that was set up by the NHS. This is money that years ago would have gone on geriatric wards in hospitals mm. where these people would have been cared for. The geriatric wards had gradually been phased out and the money that funded them was supposed to follow patients into the community. Mm. So this isn't about money-grabbing families. It's about people who are genuinely entitled to the funding. And you're right, that a lot of families give up, they lose hope, and they've got the added stress of watching their loved ones suffer and die in the process without having to go through this bureaucratic minefield at the same time. And just to give you an idea about the difference in costs that people can face, a standard care package might cost, say, £4,000 a month, which is a lot, but that's what everyone is expected to pay for out of their own pockets because social care we, we have to pay for. However, it c could cost upwards of six grand more a month 
to have one-on-one care provided if if your relative needs additional support if they can't be left on their own so it's it's a it's a large amount more that you need if you have extra health needs it's eye-watering amounts of money you know even the most affluent families are going to struggle after a while and you know watching your loved ones uh, uh, be in care and approaching the sort of last years of their lives is difficult enough but having that huge financial burden and worry about how you're going to pay for it and cover the costs on top of that it's just too much for some people. Next, I think we should hear from the other side of the fence. Uh, we've got Ruth Popel on the line, and she's a legal expert with Farley Dweck, who are a firm that deals with cases like this. Ruth, hi. Thank you for joining us today. Could you first of all just give us an indication of the kind of demand you face and what sort of emotional state are these families in by the time they come to you? We certainly get daily calls, over anything between 10 and 50 calls a day, depending on how busy we are. That varies quite a lot. And people are often very distressed when they contact us. You know, they're going through huge emotional upheaval. They have a family member who's not very well. They're then often facing financial concerns as well. They can be stuck in the discharge process, which is very stressful, very difficult to navigate. So I would say that most people who contact us are already at the point of being you know, quite distressed and quite upset. And what proportion of them, by the time they come to you, will have already tried to sort of pick their way through the application process themselves and given up? I would say probably about 50%. I'd say we deal with probably 50-50 of new applications where somebody has not yet been considered versus people who've already had an assessment and been found not eligible. And can you give us an idea of the the kind of the volume of work and the complexity, the the kind of questions and hurdles you have to navigate on the way through this process? I had a a little look online earlier at the, um, there's a, a checklist, which makes it sound like it's a, relatively easy process but it, it looked far from easy to me i think that's uh certainly from from what we see that one of the biggest myths about chc is that it's a, a relatively straightforward easy to navigate process and that families will be given all the information they need to understand that process by the clinical commissioning group i think one of the hardest things for families and for professionals working in, in chc is how subjective those criteria are there's no real benchmark of a case where some, this person is eligible and we can make comparisons with that case. You will know that those criteria are nature, intensity, complexity, and unpredictability. And what those mean in clinical practice is very difficult to quantify. And I would say that's almost as true for our staff, the professionals in the industry, as it is for families who are just starting out. I appreciate that this is a highly complicated area for a lawyer to take on. However, we're aware of firms that are charging upfront fees of four grand plus to take on cases like these. These are non-refundable. Surely that's not right. Well, I certainly couldn't comment on what other firms are charging. What I know about Farley Dweck, which is the firm I work for, what we do that's perhaps a little bit different is that we always do our own independent assessment of need before we accept an instruction. We do charge a fixed fee for that work. It's not in the region of £4,000. But before we take on any case, we always determine the merits of that case first. Um, Before we say to families, yes, you've got a really good case, 
And that, that's not only a commercial decision for us. Obviously, we need to make sure that we're allocating resources to the right cases, but it's also for the families because the process is lengthy. It can often be very distressing for people. You know, families are seeing their, their loved one in the worst condition they have ever been in. For those families to be told, well, I'm sorry, but, but you know, they're not ill enough really to meet these criteria is incredibly difficult. So, you know, it's a point of principle for us that we only put cases forward if we have already determined that they have good chances of succeeding and, and also to respect the NHS's resources as well, because it is an incredibly burdensome process. So I can understand why those fees are high. You know, some fees are high in some cases because of the volume of work that needs to be undertaken. And can you just tell us why, for example, it's a fixed upfront fee rather than a no win, no fee? arrangement we do occasionally offer no win no fee agreement but i think from our perspective it's the the volume of work that needs to be undertaken even to determine if there is a case there you know it's hours and hours of work one of the biggest challenges is getting a full set of records from the nursing home you would think that would be straightforward you know there's legislation that that underpins that process but even that we've had cases where it's taken us several years to get a set of records from the nursing home and without those records you've got no case and what, why do you think that is? Because we've been discussing here earlier about how this is of almost a perverse incentive mm-hmm. for care homes to not pursue the NHS funding route because, as I understand it, they can charge more for private beds than NHS-funded beds. Yeah, that's certainly a concern. I think that may happen in some cases, but it's, it's perhaps not in the interest of the homes for somebody to receive NHS funding because the home will then receive less money than they would from a self-funder, as they would term it. But I also think it's just the increasing pressures that nursing homes are under, you know, just getting those records out of archive, copying them, sending them over to us. They haven't got the staff. They will often tell us we haven't got the staff to look after people. We haven't got the time to be organising and and copying records. So there may be a vested interest, but there may there may not be in all cases. When when you can't win a case and someone's paid an awful lot of money, what do you say to them? <laughs> well, that's always a difficult conversation to have, and, and that's why we screen so carefully initially because I think that's that, that's the worst thing that can happen is you know where families have paid a lot of money, they've maybe spent years going through the process, and then you get to the end of it and, and, it, and it's unsuccessful. So again, that's why we screen very carefully. We're always very upfront and honest with families. If we think it's 50-50, we will tell the family it's 50-50. So it shouldn't come as a surprise mm. if we get to the end of the process and it's unsuccessful. We would always hope to have, to have prepared the family for that. Because to be honest with you, a lot of the cases we deal with are on that borderline between health and social care. And it's a hard line to draw yeah. for us and for the NHS. And what kind of reasons do cases fail at the late stage? Well, I think it's the ambiguity of the guidance and the ambiguity of the, the criteria, they can be very difficult to apply. From my experience, poor record keeping on the part of homes is a huge issue. We offer current assessments as well, where our nurses will actually go and see the person and speak to the staff at the home. And sometimes the impression you get from seeing the patient and speaking to the people caring for them day to day is wildly different from the picture you would glean from just reading their records. And there could be a number of reasons for that. Maybe the, you know, the, the management doesn't place that much importance on keeping records, or the staff don't know what kind of information they need to record, or they just haven't got time. We've also heard that the process varies from one CCG or local NHS body to another. In other words, the criteria 
are uh, implemented differently according to where you are, who's carrying out the assessment and whether they uh, the CCG wants to approve it or not. Have you got any examples of really obvious cases where people clearly meet CHC funding criteria but just don't get the money? Yes, certainly. Um, as I say, most of our cases would be on that borderline. And, and I would always hope that where somebody is obviously eligible, they would be found eligible. But I have been dealing with a case recently of a, a young man with profound learning difficulties. And those individuals often fall through the cracks in my experience. And in this particular example, this young man suffers frequent seizures. He's been under the care of the most experienced neurologists in the country. They have been unable to get those seizures under any kind of control. And when he has a seizure, he stops breathing. He goes into cardiac arrest. His care plan includes oxygen, defibrillators, CPR, and the CCG has described his care as non-complex social care. So in other words, that's being funded by... The local authority. Social care, yeah. okay. Yeah. And that's that's a clear-cut case for... He has overwhelming medical needs is what you're saying for me as a non-clinician i would call those overwhelming medical needs and you know i ran the case past several of our nurses because we i couldn't understand how he had been found not eligible and, and we all felt that this was a clear case of eligibility where his primary need was clearly for healthcare, but the ccg disagreed and on the other side of the coin do you sometimes get families who approach you for chc funding because they don't want to pay the, the social care costs or incur any care costs themselves, but they they really don't have a medical case. Yes, although I probably wouldn't put it as cynically as that. I think lots of the cases we deal with are, are older people with dementia and they need full care. You know, they're often bed bound, they can't communicate, they're severely cognitively impaired. And for any lay person or any family member, if you saw your loved one in that kind of condition, you would think, well, of course they have a health care need. Of course they qualify for this funding. But in many of those cases, actually, those people will not meet the criteria. And we would always be honest with those families and say, look, we don't think that your relative meets the criteria at this point. Oh, Ruth, thank you very much for shedding some light on, the, on it from, from your side of the fence. And good luck with the future cases. Thank you very much. Hi. Sorry to interrupt your listening, but there's another great podcast from the Mail on Sunday you might want to try. Liz Jones's Diary, the podcast, offering a weekly look into the life of Britain's most unfiltered columnist. That's me. Find us at mailplus.co.uk. Well, Pat, the reason that you are here today is because Eve Simmons is on her honeymoon. And I was lucky enough to have been invited to her absolutely lovely wedding last weekend. It was a fantastic knees up and uh, she looked great. The whole thing was brilliant. But there was two weddings going on in this incredible stately home kind of uh, area. And apparently they had 16 weddings there a week. And someone was telling me that it, it costs extra if you want to have candles lit. They, they charge every single tiny little thing. They'll, they'll bill you an extra. They'll bill you an extra. And weddings are like that, aren't they? They're sort of licences to just absolutely rinse people of every penny they could possibly rinse them of. And uh, you get a sense that social care and this whole area is, is probably something similar, but in the worst possible way. Yeah, I, mean, I heard some of the guys I spoke to in, in the, on the legal side are saying, CHE funding is, is something that nobody ever cares about and it doesn't matter to them until they need it. 
And then literally overnight, you know, they, they need to know how they can pay to look after their, their loved ones. The amounts of money that are going into the sector and pouring out of it from the sale of family homes and savings is truly breathtaking. This is a huge complex area where a lot of people are struggling, but it's clear that this pot of money, if distributed fairly and evenly across the board, could help many more people than it is at the moment. Mm. Well, look, we're really keen to hear from anyone who has experience, good or bad, of these firms. So so really do get in touch with us and email us at health at mailonsunday.co.uk and tell us your stories. You can also tweet us with your stories using the hashtag medicalminefield or directly at me. I'm at Barney, B-A-R-N-E-Y, Kalman, C-A-L-M-A-N. It's just about all we have time for. You can read all about this and more in this weekend's The Mail on Sunday. And we'll be back with another topic on Medical Minefield next week. So see you then. And it's goodbye from me. (laughs) 